Back in November of 2019, I went out to the head office of Best Practice Software with my trusty backpack of audio recording equipment, and I sat down with Frank and Lorraine Pyfinch from Best Practice Software. That was episode 23 of the podcast. And that was a great conversation with two iconic figures within the Australian medical software landscape. And it laid out some of the journey that they've had to get to where best practice is now and the journey of some clinicians and explored the current health landscape that GPs, practice owners and patients all operate in. But then a few months after releasing the episode, a global pandemic hit and obviously no one could have predicted what would happen next. So with me today, I'm very lucky to be joined again by Frank and Lorraine Pyfinch. And in this episode, we're picking up from where we left off just before COVID. We'll explore the new landscape for healthcare and GPs, the current regulatory policy and system landscape. Plus, we'll cover a lot more too. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Burge, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Frank and Lorraine Pyfinch from Best Practice Software. No strangers to Talking Health Tech and co-founders of Australia's leading clinical and practice management software for primary care. Hey, Frank and Lorraine, how are you going? Good. 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 Great to have you on the show again. So thank you for joining. And look, it's been it's been a couple of years since we spoke on the podcast. And between conversations, we've had this global pandemic. From your perspective, how's this landscape of healthcare changed in that time? It's been um, chaos, really, hasn't it? <laughs> I mean, it hit in March of 2020 and... No one was really prepared for it. And the government's response initially was fairly shambolic for general practice in particular. There was no PPE. There was no um, plan for how patients would be managed through the pandemic. And it was all a bit chaotic, how I saw it anyway. To say the least. And... It's obviously shifted a lot of priorities for people as well. So from your perspective, as best practice, how's that shifted your priorities? It hasn't really shifted them. Our priorities have always been to provide software that enables our practices to function as efficiently as possible. And we did different things to get them to do that. We had to make it easier to do telehealth and we had to embrace e-scripts and and so on. But a priority has always been to provide what our users needed to be able to do their job. And and that priority didn't really shift. Yeah. And tell me more about those needs and what what the time's been like from a healthcare provider's perspective, particularly in Australia. Lorraine, have you had some perspective? (laughs) Well, one of the really interesting things was um, particularly during the lockdowns when doctors were pivoting towards more telehealth, we were quite fascinated to see just what a high proportion of consultations were done via phone rather than um, a video conference tool. So that was certainly something that was quite interesting, even though video conferencing has been around for many, many years. And... um, the same goes for e-scripts. You know, we've been doing e-scripts or had the capability to do e-scripts up to a certain point, but legislative requirements over a signed prescription by the doctor 
basically prevented that loop to be completely electronic. So, mm. you know, that's the other big change as well, you know, that functionality that we, we knew could be done, it's finally caught up from a government point of view. And that was really driven by the pandemic. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you look at both of those examples of being able to do telehealth consultations and also to be able to do proper e-prescribing and the ability to have that full circle done digitally, I guess. Like you say, it wasn't necessarily adoption of technical capability that was holding some of that back. It's like everyone kind of knew the potential, but you know, if doctors weren't going to get paid or if there wasn't the regulatory structure to be able to do it, then it just wasn't going to happen. So I guess that's a positive thing that's come out of it. Yeah, it was on our roadmap, but it was for probably six months later than when we managed to um, release it. We were asked in March whether we would be able to fast-track e-scripts. The ADHA approached us. In fact, they rang me one Saturday afternoon and and said, would it be possible to try and fast-track the e-scripts? They knew that we had it on our roadmap because we'd already been having some meetings and planning sessions with them and yeah we said we can certainly do that and so we got stuck into it and in about eight weeks we were able to send the first e-script in may of 2020. it's interesting too that you raised that point about you know being contacted by the adha and you know just given the presence of best practice software particularly in the the gp space i mean you you know you've got your finger on the pulse of a lot of primary care physicians in Australia, it's a big role to play because essentially you can become advocates for what GPs need. Did you see that through that process that part of your role in all of this was to almost advocate for clinicians in some of this process where some of these policy decisions are being made in consultation sometimes with best practice in the industry, but making sure that clinician needs are front of mind? Am I kind of reading the situation correctly? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. And we have regular monthly meetings with ADHA and fairly senior level and we definitely put users concerns and thoughts forward to them when they talk about any changes in the electronic healthcare landscape then we will give them our opinion based on what we know about our users they, you know and they're reasonably good listeners most of the time the, the problem comes when they have to deal with the actual government mm. <laughs> That's right. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of decisions are made internally within the department without much consultation to industry. And I know it's something that, you know, the MSIA works really hard to try to limit, but, you know, occasionally we still get stuff pushed out where, you know, workflows haven't been properly thought out, logistics haven't been well thought out, timing, you know, they'll make an announcement and expect it just to happen. But, Mm. you know, the reality of software development can be very slow depending on what they're requiring. Yeah. And think about what some of those tools enabled then, you know, like take eScripts, for example, people speak quite highly as that being, you know, one of the best innovations, whether it's next to or even on top of the ability to do a telehealth consult. Do you think that's true that eScripts have probably even saved potentially a lot of lives? It certainly saved a lot of people from having to be exposed to COVID just to pick up a prescription and it saved healthcare workers from having people having to turn up at the surgery to pick up scripts and that mm. sort of thing. So yeah, if you look at it sort of a, as a big picture, we probably did save a few lives indirectly. Yeah, telehealth was a real schmozzle at the start. It was something that 
the rules changed every couple of weeks at least. They introduced all these new item numbers. Mm. They had complicated rules. Some could be bulk build, some had to be bulk build, some had incentives attached and some didn't. There was way too many of them. And they changed all the time and, and they'd add new ones and take old ones away and then they'd put them back because it, <laughs> it was all over the shop for about two or three months before they kind of settled down a bit. Yeah. So the government in that sense, the department didn't really, I think it was making up stuff on the run. Mm. They didn't really have a plan. And then thinking with telehealth then, and you know, like we've seen a lot of the data and now with many clinicians and patients experiencing telehealth in one way or another, still a lot of it is delivered over the telephone and there's a lot of different options available for video. Why is it, do you think, that clinicians will often choose to stick with a basic phone call? Well, the telephone's simple and easy. We all know how to use it. Even elderly patients know how to use it. There's no dramas. There's no special hardware required. There's no setting up. You just ring a number and off you go. And we've also been doing telehealth for years. It's just that we didn't always get paid for it. I've worked out in rural Queensland for a couple of years and people who were out on properties, the only way they could contact you without travelling 90 or 100 kilometres was through the phone, <laughs> party line in fact, in those days. Mm. And um, so we've always been used to talking to patients over the phone. We often give results and things over the phone or ring patients to tell them that we want to see them. And, and so it was natural, whereas video telehealth was much more complex for most people and to some extent relied on both ends having not just hardware but expertise which wasn't something that most people had at that point in time it's also the added cost too because if you're buying you know additional software or equipment and then training you know the clinicians but also patients you know that all comes at a cost as well so yeah the telephone just proves to be much easier and quicker and, you know, it's there. I've thought a lot about this too and you think in different clinics, particularly family clinics who know their patients well and doctors, GPs and nurses know their the demographic, like how people operate, how they get to their appointments, let alone what technology they prefer to use. And so quite often I imagine people would then go to whatever's, like Frank said, natural and that's the best way as long as you can have a conversation that's meaningful and has good outcomes, then the platform that's used is probably secondary to the um, discussion. In the end, if good quality patient care can be delivered, then having a system around it to be able to support it however it's delivered whether it's on a phone or a video or in person is is probably really important i mean it's debatable how much value the video component brings to the consultation because there are a couple of possible things that having a ability to view them helps to decide how to proceed but most of the time if something needs to be seen, it needs to be seen in real life. And a mobile phone image, I'm not going to diagnose a melanoma on a mobile phone. I'm going to tell them they've got to come in and let me see it and mm. use a thermoscope or whatever. It's not something that adds enough value to make it more useful than the telephone, in mm. my opinion. Mm. I mean, if someone says they've got belly pain, seeing their belly on the phone doesn't help you. You've got to <laughs> touch it and poke at it and prod it. <laughs> it's what doctors do. 
And I'm thinking about as well, you know, through the pandemic, there's been a lot of different models of care for primary care being created. And they existed prior to COVID, but obviously this is with the changes in telehealth rules and other bits and pieces happening. We've seen more, some people call them pop-up clinics, but also different ways to be able to engage with patients directly. So not in a traditional bricks and mortar clinic, the ability for patients to be able to receive healthcare through an app and then engage with a clinician via the app and not have a physical place to to meet. You've seen how primary care has delivered and, you know, worked there and developed technology all around it in that conventional practice setting. What's your take on these types of services that are becoming more available? I mean, if you're talking about the sort of telehealth services that were initially popped up when Medicare benefits for telehealth were first announced, that was not constructive in any way because they were just taking patients away from their regular practice and fragmenting care and fragmenting the record and all the rest of it. So I think telehealth integrated into regular practice has some value and will do after the pandemic because, as I said, you don't always need to see people face-to-face. You can give them results over the phone. You can tell them what needs to be done sometimes without necessarily seeing them. But at the end of the day, medicine is a bit of a social thing in that, you know, you get to know your patients through seeing them, um, not through talking to them on the phone. You know, I I think there's probably 20 or 30% of consultations could remain as telehealth into the future, but the bulk still have to be face-to-face. That's just my feeling, and I mean, I'm trained 50 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's good. I think what's interesting is hearing the perspective from patients as well, and and in the end, if patients have a preference in receiving care, and then if the system can support, then um, it'll be interesting to see how that comes through. The patients do like it and we've experienced it personally because Lorraine's mum who's in her um, mid-80s, she had to have a few telehealth consultations through the course of the pandemic and about non-pandemic matters, routine sort of stuff and, and she, made she loves it. <laughs> and she loved it and it was just telephone telehealth, It was no, there was no videos. And it worked quite well, and she was very pleased with the fact that she could do that without risking going out and catching COVID. Hey, in our last chat, we spoke about in the primary care setting, more and more clinics becoming corporatized. And what comes along with that is the need to be able to have different ways to measure the financials and the performance within clinics. So do you find that there's an increasingly important need to have more sophisticated financial management tools within practice management systems like best practice? Well, there is a need for them. I don't know that they necessarily need to be integrated into the practice management system, but they need to integrate with it, Mm. not necessarily be part of it. Because for starters, we're not financial experts. It's not our area of expertise. There are people who can take the data from the practice database and analyse it in ways that um, can improve the profitability of the practice. And people like Cubico, for example, a business intelligence type of software who are one of our partners, that can provide that business intelligence without us needing to actually provide it in the program directly. Mm. So I see that sort of collaboration with people who do have the expertise. 
And just building on the conversation we had last time as well, uh, we spoke a bit about Medicare and some of the legacy software. Then that was, I think, nearly two and a half years ago we spoke. Has much changed when it comes to being able to integrate with Medicare from a practice management point of view? Medicare announced probably a year or so ago that they, despite the pandemic and everyone being flat out doing pandemic-related stuff, they were going to move all of their online claiming from an adapter-based method to a web service-based method. And technically, that is a good thing to do. But the way they did it, it was kind of like they gave us a cutoff of March the 12th this year, I think it was. And, and they just said, right, at that date, the adapter's going to stop working. Mm. So all your practices have to be prepared to use the web service interface. And we did work really hard and got it finished and tested and through their testing in time to meet that deadline. But some of our practices couldn't immediately upgrade. Some of our practices have, well, one has 250 sites, they can't just roll out new software at a minute's notice. So we managed to get an extension into the middle of June, which was appreciated, but we should have never had to be fighting to get that. It should have been a little bit more planned. Mm. Again, it all comes back to planning, doesn't it? And not something that Department of Health or Medicare are renowned for. But anyway, having said that, it's early days. It's only been out for just a bit over a month. It's about six weeks since that first deadline passed. And, I mean, Medicare used to be, well, still is, one of our biggest drivers of support calls. And whether the web services will improve that or not, it's unclear at this stage. It's not been, we haven't had long enough to see if there's going to be any reduction in issues with Medicare claiming since moving to the web services. I mean, I'm hoping that there will be, but it's too early to tell yet. Right, right. Hey, and another thing we spoke about before was the um, integration with My Health Record and the role that that plays generally and, and some of that journey leading up to that point. That was back in, you know, the end of 2019. Has there been much developments from your side when it comes to the involvement with My Health Record, particularly from a primary care perspective? No, really, it's gone very quiet, which is a bit surprising because it may have had a role during the pandemic, but mm. seemed to get completely forgotten about. And in fact, it's very quiet. I don't know if you read the um, Wild Health, I think it's Medical Republic. Yep. yep um, Jeremy's stuff, he had a very, very recent article about the the numbers and mm. the department or the ADHA quote some really large numbers, but whether they're meaningful, he questioned. Mm. <laughs> and we sort of do too. We haven't had any approaches from ADHA to do any further interfacing with it. There's not been anything new in the pipeline. And I understand that the pandemic probably did push everyone's thoughts into different areas. But at the moment, I think from Jeremy's article, I'm getting the impression that it's sitting unused, largely unused, and gathering huge numbers of documents that no one's actually interested in reading. <laughs> I'm just putting all this together and thinking from a you know a GP seeing patients every day, their perspective, it's been a remarkably tough gig, and it is continues to be a tough slog, and it's hard when sometimes the system doesn't like the healthcare system or whether it's policy or whether it's all the, the infrastructure around it doesn't support you. 
So, I mean, there's probably only so much you can do, Lorraine, from a software perspective other than be the advocate for GPs whenever possible to be able to try and create a landscape that um, you can deliver meaningful care from. Exactly. You're right. There is only so much you can do. You know, all we can do is work with others in the industry and all of our contacts that we do have and at least try to, you know, influence positively how things go in the future. So we continue to do that. Taking into consideration all of that and then looking into the future, if you, not to try and pull a crystal ball because who knows how the future goes, but what do you see the future looking like in terms of, I guess, your priorities, how they continue to go and, and what you'll be working on at best practice in the next year or two? We, obviously, the pandemic pushed us into doing bits of work that we hadn't planned to do or doing it earlier, and, and that sort of set back some of our other work that we had been doing, and that was obviously redeveloping the core product, which we've been doing for several years now, and we're getting back to that and really trying to push that forward because it is the next generation of medical software. It's cloud-based and it's... Um, it uses all the latest technologies, has all the latest security features. Mm. It makes interoperability much simpler. We really want to get that out, and that's um, our, our focus for the next year or so. The other thing is our patient app that we released a couple of years ago. Is We've got a, an upgrade of that ready that uh, we'll be releasing soon, and we hope that we will be able to improve that communication between GPs and their patients and give some telehealth related stuff that's simpler that they can do telehealth through their phone, through the BP app and have it all integrated so that no one has to have much technical knowledge on either end. Again, Lorraine's mum has used FaceTime for years. Mm. Uh, she understands that if you can make something simple enough that it doesn't have any complicated steps that have to be performed to get it to start or to work. And, and Apple have been very good at making all their products that have that ease of use. Um, so we're aiming to try and, and improve the communication between the practice and the patients through using the app. So that's a big focus for us over the next year or so. And we see that application, you know, widely across all of our market segments, not only GPs, because... I mean, obviously, we do have solutions for allied health as well as some um, specialists. So, you know, you can certainly see a wide range of uses across all those sectors. Definitely. Well, look, I'll put the details for best practice in the show notes of this episode for people can check out and keep across the journey as some of those exciting opportunities continue to develop. Look, Frank and Lorraine, I really appreciate you making the time for the chat and look forward to finding out what we explore when we catch up again in another couple of years. Thank you so much. Hopefully we don't have another pandemic in between. <laughs> let's, not, let's not wish it into the universe, shall we? So that's a good work. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.